Exactly. Yeah. So then it becomes the what we call the effective reproduction, and we just call it R then. And yeah. So if we um, can do things to reduce these three factors that go into the reproduction number, then we can slow it down. So, uh, for example, if we can quarantine people who are sick, then that takes them effectively from the infected category straight into the recovered category. It reduces the effective time for which they can spread the disease. So that reduces the reproduction number. If we can stop people going within two meters of each other, that reduces the transmissibility of the disease. This is episode 114 of the Neuro Experience podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. Today joining me is Dr. Kit Yates, a senior lecturer in mathematical biology at the University of Bath. What is mathematical biology and how is it relevant to what we're currently going through with the COVID-19 crisis? In this episode, Kit and I discuss the mathematical modelling behind the COVID-19 crisis with a bit of a twist. We also go into Kit's book, The Math of Life and Death, The Seven Mathematical Principles That Shape Our Lives. In this book, he explores patterns in our everyday life. He breaks down the simple mathematical concepts that form the foundation of nearly every occurrence in our lives. I'm honored to have him on the show, and I must warn you, we get pretty geeky in this episode. You all know I started my career in mathematics, but this episode and this conversation was especially exciting for me, so I hope you enjoy it. On March 11, 2020, the World Health Organization made an announcement. In the past two weeks, the number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. The coronavirus, or COVID-19 disease, had already overwhelmed China, South Korea, Iran, and Italy. And this was a warning to other countries where it was now spreading quickly. In the days and weeks ahead, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. The spread of COVID-19 was no longer something that could be stopped. But we can still slow it down. We just have to act right now. Kit, I'm so excited to have you on board. Um, I recently found you on Twitter and one of your tweets really spiked my interest. I'm a, I'm a mathematics major myself, not to the um, level that you are at. So, um, but everything mathematic related, mathematics related, I'm absolutely interested in. Now, your recent book, um, uh, what you write about, the, the math of life and death, seven mathematical principles that shape our lives. You go and explore patterns and break down simple mathematical concepts that form the foundation for um, nearly everything that we go through in life. And I absolutely love that. So before we get into those seven principles and how they relate to us as humans and um, with the recent pandemic, why don't you give us a brief background on what you do now and a bit about this book? Yeah, so I am a mathematical biologist, which is a sort of strange term. I think not many people have heard of it. I think people find it a strange idea that maths, which they view as this really uh, pure and abstract subject, can have anything to do with biology, which is sort of seemingly messy and real world. Um, and and that was my opinion as well. When I was at school, I, I enjoyed doing biology. I enjoyed doing maths. I ended up specializing a bit more in the physical sciences and maths. And when I went to university, I did mathematics at uh, undergraduate level and I was a bit sad because I thought well I've left behind biology which is this really amazing science which can help you to understand life but actually when I got into mathematics 
I started to realize that maths is effectively the language of science. It's a way of understanding all different things in the world. So we use maths and physics to understand quantum effects and to understand the way that gravity can uh, bend space time in the theory of general relativity. We use it in um, economics, we use it in finance, we use it in chemistry. We even use it in places that you wouldn't expect like the movies to com- to create computer generated images of scenes which just couldn't exist in the real world. So um, we're using maths all over the place. And that's what I discovered when I did maths at, at university was that actually maths is a really great way of understanding the world. And no more so is that true than in my own subject of biology, mathematical biology. So I had a great lecturer uh, at undergraduate level who was a mathematical biologist. And I learned all about um, various different ways that we can use math to understand different systems. And I decided this was the thing for me. So I did a master's where I studied locust migration, the way that locusts move and how we can stop them from swarming. And then I did a PhD in what's called systems biology. And now I looked at the way that cells migrate around an embryo when the embryo is forming and what can happen if um, something goes wrong with the migration of those embryos to diseases that can form and how we can help to to rectify them uh, and then yeah I ended up getting a job at the University of Bath as a, a mathematical biologist and I've sort of never looked back from there I work on all sorts of things from the way that eggshells get their patterns to the way that um, birds fly around together in the air um, and yeah it's, it's a really it's a fascinating uh, job there's there's loads to do um, and then I guess uh, I decided that I wanted to share some of my love for mathematics and its applications in the real world with uh, the general public and with people who maybe don't know that maths can be as ubiquitous and as useful as it is. So I decided to write this book, The, the Math of Life and Death, uh, as it's called in America, it's The Maths of Life and Death in the UK. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's all about the places where maths can have an impact on people's everyday lives, perhaps without them even realising it. So um, mm people who've been affected by mathematics um, through maybe mathematical miscarriages of justice in the courtroom. It might be people who've lost fortunes because of mathematical misunderstandings. Um, so yeah, there's, there's loads of stories uh, in the book which uh, are really all about um, why math is important and how it can have an impact on your life. Oh, I love that. You're speaking my language. I, um, I actually was a math teacher. So that's how I started my love and journey in math. And I, I remember way back when um, there's this famous quote that I live by and, and it goes along the lines of, if everything beautiful is true and everything true is beautiful, then mathematics must be the be- most beautiful thing in the world. And I fell in love with math, especially pure math, because it really is a, um, it really is true. It is, it's a, it's a true thing that we we don't realize it's right in front of us. Um, I remember a distinct time in my life when I was teaching year eight students. So they're generally, you know, eighth grade, uh, 13, 14. I put a a five minute YouTube clip on the golden ratio. And it was just, it was a very emotional. And when you really understand the math and and how that, um, how that equates to life and biology. And I'm just so excited, you know, I'm so excited to actually get further into your book and, um, but yeah, I want to, I want to get into the first principle because we've got seven principles and I really hope that we can cover them all. And I want to go as in depth as possible. And hopefully when we get to the epidemiology part, we can actually talk about the current pandemic and how you're currently using, especially on Twitter, you're using mathematical modeling to actually predict what's going to be happening now and in the future post pandemic. So I love that, but let's, um, let's dive straight into principle one and that is thinking exponentially. So what, what is this concept and um, tell us a bit about it. 
Right. So, so exponential growth actually sort of ironically has been in the news a lot with the, with the pandemic. Mm. Um, something grows exponentially when it grows in proportion to its current size. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what exponential is. People often think it means big or it means fast and it, it can mean big and fast, but um, you've got to remember that the money in your bank account is, is growing in proportion to its current size. It's growing exponentially, technically, but no one would accuse the money of, in your bank account, or at least not in my bank account, of growing quickly or, or of being big. <laughs> so the exponential growth can be slow, especially at the start of a process. Um, but actually, uh, as things go on, and if the growth rate is fast enough, then exponential growth can get very big and very fast. And it can be uh, surprising when it gets big and fast. So, for example, things like pyramid schemes, people uh, mm. investing some money, giving it to someone above them in the pyramid and then convincing two people below them to invest in the scheme. These schemes seem like uh, on the face of it, a sort of easy, easy money. You just have to convince two people to give you some money and then you'll you'll be in profit. Um, but actually, because the number of people, every generation, every row of this pyramid scheme doubles each time, it's growing in proportion to its current size, it grows exponentially and things can get out of hand pretty quickly. Um, so after 10 generations of this pyramid scheme, you end up having a thousand people in the scheme and then another 10 generations, it becomes a million. And then um, very quickly, you get uh, over the number of people in the in the earth would need to be recruited in this pyramid scheme to keep it going so in the end the vast majority of people lose their money but at the time when you're sort of locally in this in this little cell of the pyramid scheme you can't see that bigger picture you can't yeah. see how it's growing exponentially and that eventually it will it will uh, blow up and, and everyone will lose their money so um that's just one example of where exponential growth can can be incredibly important and and potentially distressing for people if they don't understand it. That is fantastic. Let's move on to number two: um, sensitivity, specificity, and second opinions. Yeah. So again, this this is all about understanding um, tests and how tests can be wrong in in a variety of different contexts. So again, this has relationships to to what's happening in this uh, pandemic at the moment. Yeah. We're thinking about testing lots of people uh, and uh, one strategy for helping us to get out of lockdown in, in this pandemic is potentially to test people who may or may not have had the disease and people who have had the disease do this antibody test that we can detect they have had a, an immune response to the virus we give an immunity passport which means that they can go to work and they can carry on their daily life it's a way of getting the economy going again um, but those tests need to be incredibly accurate because what can happen is if you test a large proportion of the population uh, who don't have the disease or haven't had the disease, which is going to be the case at the moment, we suspect about uh, maybe less than 10% of people have actually had COVID-19, at least that's for the UK, probably similarly across the world, maybe even fewer. Uh, when you test a, a, a lot of people who probably don't have the disease, then you can get real problems with false positives. So yeah. we see this over and over again when we come to screening programs so for example breast cancer screening in in different countries we're testing a lot of people who probably don't have the disease the actual background prevalence of the disease can be as low as uh, a couple of percent in the population now if you have a test which gives uh, even a, a small rate of false positives so that is 
get telling people they have the disease when they actually don't have the disease, that's a false positive, then what can happen is, because you're testing so many people that don't have the disease, you, the number of, of false positives can dramatically outweigh the number of true positives just by dint of the fact that you're testing so many people that don't have the disease. And so what can happen is you, you send people a letter home saying, um, you know, you need to come for further tests because your, your breast cancer screen showed that you have some, some abnormality. Um, and actually, the vast majority of the time, those letters are, are false positives. They are, they are not uh, real disease, disease letters. So it actually says that uh, people will be getting stressed and nervous about these tests when actually they, they probably shouldn't do. So they need to bear in mind that um, false positives can dramatically outweigh true positives. And, and that's dangerous in the case of, of COVID testing because we might be sending a lot of people who uh, genuinely haven't got antibodies out into the workforce who then may get infected and then potentially will spread the disease and kick off a second wave of of the epidemic in, in different countries. So understanding these rates of false positives and false negatives, what we call sensitivity and specificity, are really important. This is so interesting because, you know, as a as you know, the general public, we're just relying on the CDC and um, and what the media gives us. We don't really understand the the true mathematics that goes behind this. And I think um, for, every, you know, a lot of citizens, especially, you know, I, I'm in Australia and in New York where I, where I live, it's it's kind of scary. And um, for yourself, when you can actually understand what false positives are, like how the testing is, it probably it's very mind-boggling for yourself as well, especially when you hear certain presidents claim that, you know, just go and inject some um, disinfectant or some Lysol and you'll be okay. I can only imagine what goes on in your head um, so what are your predictions in terms of this specific principle and how we're going to be um, both testing and um, coming up with a uh, with a cure like whatever we're going to be doing how, how do you see it rolling out for the remainder of 2020 sure well, there's a couple of couple of things in there firstly like, there's really good news in that even if you don't have a more accurate test, if you run a second version of the test on all the people who tested positive then you can dramatically reduce this rate of false positives so in terms of athletics if uh, if you have uh, people going for a uh, doping test afterwards their sample is always split into an a and a b sample and the reason for that is because you test the a sample if it comes back positive before you go and label someone as a drugs cheat you go and test their b sample and that's because even if you don't have a more accurate test it can dramatically reduce the rate of false positives so in terms of going back to uh, covid covid19 uh, retesting people who have tested positive can dramatically weed out a lot of these false positives. Now, that's one possible way to get out of the lockdown. Um, alternative strategies uh, are numerous and people are suggesting all sorts of interesting and, and crazy ideas. One idea is to just go through periods of, of locking down uh, the population and then letting people free, completely free, back to normal, if you like, and then just waiting until the number of critical care beds gets to a certain threshold and then locking people down again and alternating this pattern until eventually we get through to a case where we've got enough people infected that the disease can't pass through the population anymore. Mm. Um, other strategies involve reducing the numbers down to almost zero and then doing what's called well rigorous testing and then contact tracing so anyone that does have the disease is isolated immediately and then they're asked who they've had contact with in the last 14 days and then we find those people and we isolate them as well so but it, it re really relies on being completely rigorous to catch every case because one person slipping the net can go and as we've seen with the case of exponential growth cause a huge outbreak of the disease so uh, that's another potential strategy but yes yeah, certainly um 
this is an amazing opportunity for science communication but we also have to be aware that it's a big opportunity for science miscommunication and when the president of the united states is saying things like you know bleach might be a useful way to treat this disease it's a little bit crazy and we have to be on our guard and try to make sure that people don't go and do silly things like that by accident Absolutely. And just to reiterate your point of, you know, catching the people who may be symptomatic and um, putting them in a 14 day quarantine period. I came back to Australia from New York um, to be with my family in the last two weeks. And I actually had to um, fall under the new Australian laws, which were every Australian citizen who enters Australia has to be quarantined in a we got to put in a hotel. Um, we didn't know where we were going and it was strict quarantine. We didn't have any fresh air, no windows, no human contact. It was actually really, um, it was really frustrating. And to some, it was quite traumatizing. And I've, I read throughout the entire time, a lot of the people in the UK, and there was actually a girl in the UK who was, um, you know, she had, she was battling some um, mental I would say challenges, and there's a bit, there was a lot of people who were actually committing suicide, unfortunately. Which um, I can only suggest is going to raise the amount of lawsuits that's going to be happening during this time. Which brings me to your third principle, which is the laws of mathematics, and that's where you go into the role of math in our legal system. So, do you think that maybe right now we'll be we'll be looking at um, the laws of mathematics in this current pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be um, really important to um, have a good understanding of mathematics and, and the law courts are another case where that can happen. So there's all sorts of mathematical mistakes that happen in the courtrooms which go undetected or uncorrected, perhaps, because I think there's, there's this idea that comes up a lot in the book, which is all about the illusion of certainty. So mm. people with authority saying a number and a figure and people thinking that they can't question that number or figure because that person is an expert in their field and numbers are, are, are absolute truth and actually i guess oh, one of them could you say that one more time yeah sorry of course so um <laughs> yeah so this idea that um people in the in the courtroom for example experts who who wield a number or statistic people think that because they're an expert in medicine and that they're showing a number around and a number is a, a nugget of hard truth that that can't be questioned mm. but actually um we should we should be aware that numbers um statistics can be used in different ways to paint different pictures or people can shine a light on a particular subject using a particular number but that doesn't necessarily represent the whole truth and just because someone's an expert in medicine it doesn't necessarily make them an expert in the numbers or the statistics behind uh behind the the, the figures they're trying to present so we had one very famous case in the uk which is a case of um, Sally Clark, who was a, a lawyer herself, a solicitor, and she was convicted for murdering her two young sons. Both died around the age of eight to 11 weeks. Um, and there was a, an expert witness who testified against her in, in the court, a guy called uh, Sir Roy Meadow. Uh, and he used statistics in a way which probably he shouldn't have done. So he suggested that the probability of a single child dying of sudden infant death syndrome, which is the, the um, diagnosis you come to when everything else has been ruled out and you can't find another um, diagnosis. One in 8,000, he suggested. And then he said the probability of two infants dying uh, must be at one in 8,000 times itself. So one in 8,000 squared, which is about one in 73 million. So we painted this picture that the alternative explanation, if Sally Clark hadn't murdered her children, was incredibly unlikely to happen. 
but actually he'd made a mistake in what he was doing. So he'd, he'd mistaken, uh, mistakenly multiplied this number uh, one in 8,000 by itself to find the probability of two sudden instant deaths. But actually those two events aren't independent of each other. You can't just multiply their probabilities together to find the probability of the two events happening. They're related to each other. As soon as you've had one child die of sudden infant death syndrome, you know that you have some of the attendant risk factors associated with that condition, some of which are, are actually genetic. So you maybe just have the wrong genes. So actually when you, when you truly calculate the numbers, it doesn't paint such a terrible picture. But unfortunately, no one thought to question this in the courtroom the jury just believed this number and it was one of the most convincing numbers in the whole uh, testimony and sally clark was unfortunately convicted eventually she appealed and she was released but by that point a significant amount of psychological damage had been done and unfortunately she uh, became an alcoholic and she died of alcohol poisoning a few years after being released so it's a, it's a tragic story and it's a tragic indication of what can happen when people get the maths wrong and no one thinks to question the so-called experts in these cases is this why you came up with the fourth principle don't believe the truth Right, exactly. So uh, <laughs> the, same, the same thing goes in, in, in the media as well. So people see a statistic in a, in a newspaper headline and they, they perhaps think that, uh, that it's the whole truth. Uh, and actually, it's, it's the newspaper trying to sell newspapers. So it's in their interest to try to exaggerate the figures that, they're, that, they're, that you're reading about. So there's, there's a nice example of, um, of the Sun newspaper in the UK. They had a headline which suggested that uh, eating bacon sandwich every day increased your risk of colorectal cancer over the course of your lifetime by 20%. And I read this and I thought, well, could it be the case that uh, if your background rate of getting colorectal cancer is 5%, that actually if you eat a bacon sandwich every day, that increases to 25%? Because that was what this figure was suggesting to me when I read it. But actually, when I dug down into the figures, it turns out that the background rate of getting colorectal cancer, if you don't eat a bacon sandwich every day, is 5%. And when you do eat a bacon sandwich, it just raises to 6%. But what the sun had done is said, well, this increase of 1% from 5% to 6% on the background rate of 5%, one divided by five is, is 20%. So they'd said this is a 20% increase in risk. But this is what's called the, the relative increase in risk. And actually, if you want to really know what um, the impact of having a particular lifestyle choice is, on, is going to be on your, your health risk, then you need to actually find what are, the, what are called the absolute risk figures. So this figure of 5% and 6%, which are usually a lot smaller. They're usually two numbers compared to the one number of the relative risk. Uh, so, you, so if you do see a headline in the newspaper, which just has one big percentage figure, um, then you need to dig a little bit deeper, maybe try and follow up in the, in the actual scientific paper, which are increasingly being made available online and for free, and find out these absolute risk figures. Um, it's not just the newspapers, though, that do this either. It's also uh, scientific journals that like to present the benefits using the relative risks of this big number, which makes it look positive. And when it comes to uh, presenting the side effects, they almost do that thing at the end of a radio advert where they speak really quickly. They just present them as really quickly uh, absolute risks, very small figures to make the, the, the detrimental side of their treatment look uh, better than it actually is. Okay, I've got two points to um to add on that and ask you. First point is, how can we really identify a relative risk um to a population when we when we read such headlines as this when uh, everybody's different, our DNA is different, isn't the percentage raised if me for example has a history, a family history of of the disease, wouldn't it wouldn't my risk be increased? How can we just rely on a one size fits all percentage? 
Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. And you shouldn't just take these things at face value and assume that those risks that are presented are, are the same risks for you. These are called uh, ecological fallacies and we deal with a few of them in the book. But yeah, assuming that a population average is going to be appropriate for an individual is, uh, is, is, is not the right thing to do necessarily. It's just a sort of a guide for you. Uh, actually, in, in the book, I, I look at these uh, genetic personal diagnostic companies. So people like 23andMe, and I get my own tests done and I analyze the mathematics uh, behind the, the increased risk. I actually turned out to have an increased risk of early onset Alzheimer's, which was a, quite a shock. I, I thought of took this test thinking, um, you know, this isn't going to say anything. You tested the ApoE4 gene with that? Yeah, exactly. ApoE4 wow. Yeah. One, one E4 variant, I think, or E3. I can't remember the, the precise details. But So I'm not super high risk, but slightly increased risk of early onset Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, and I found this really interesting, but I wanted to dig dig down into the math to find out um, exactly how, how it worked and, and whether we can trust these uh, genetic testing companies to 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 be accurate. And it actually turns out the maths they use is, is pretty reliable, but there's also a lot of variation between different companies. So mm. you have to, again, take their results with a slight pinch of salt and not take them as, as absolute fact. Yeah, I'm so happy you brought that up because I speak a lot about 23andMe and I speak a lot about um, Viome, which is a, a gut microbiome test that a lot of the world is actually, you know, buying into now. And, and I do my best to provide the best resources available. So I'm so happy that you pointed that out. Um, my second question to add on to that, um, to that principle was you noted where you get a lot of your scientific information from. What are the best journals that you read? Right. It's really, it's really difficult to say. Um, I, I read a lot of different journals and actually often would say that when I look at a, a, a journal article, I'm not so much interested in, in the journal as long as I know it's a reputable journal and that the studies have been peer reviewed. I'm interested also in, in the authors. So I'll always go and check out who the authors are, whether they come from reputable institutions uh, and what their background is. Uh, and I'll make sure that I, I do a sort of background check. And it's important to do that, not just for, for scientific papers, but also for for everyday life. So if you see someone on Twitter saying, uh, as I have done in the last few weeks, here's my timetable for releasing lockdown and presenting loads of positive news and everyone likes this tweet on Twitter, uh, mm. then I'll go and check that person out and say, oh, what's their background? And actually often, and as has, has been the case recently, I found people who have been promoting things like alternative medicine or people have no background in in mathematics or understanding the modeling of how we might release lockdown and they're tweeting to 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 send out a positive message and people are retweeting it because it's it's confirmation bias it's what they want to hear uh, but actually that person has a, a sort of awful uh, scientific credibility so shouldn't really be be believed so it's important to look at not just what people say but actually what their what their background is as well that's brilliant um now, principle number five, I try my whole life to not live by this, which is wrong place, wrong time. Um, yeah. So can you talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, so this is probably the, the most like mathematical chapter in the book. I'm, I'm sort of looking at the way that our number systems have evolved and potentially how they let us down. So um, we use a based number system, which, which means that we count up to 10, then we move on to the next place in our place value system. So place value just means that you can have a number like 222, whether the twos represent three different things, firstly 200, and then 20, and then two, whereas a lot of cultures in the past didn't have that sort of place value system. They had uh, numerals which represented units, and then if you wanted to, to represent the number nine, you had to draw nine of those units. And then they had a numeral which represented 10, 
And if you wanted to draw 90, then you had to draw nine of those and then so on and so on. And you, and you eventually got to a point where they, they ran out of figures. So you couldn't go up too high. But there were more, there were more advanced civilizations in the past which had this place value system. Uh, people like the Sumerians uh, a few thousand years ago, uh, even before the Egyptians. Uh, and they used a base uh, called base 60. So this is, instead of counting in tens, they would count up to 60 before they clocked on to the, to the next uh, power of 60. So it would go 60, 3,600. And actually, this is where our, our clock system comes from. So we have minutes which are made up of 60 seconds and then uh, uh, hours which are made up of 60 minutes. So you get 3,600 seconds in an hour. So it's sort of interesting to trace where, where things in our modern day culture uh, where they come from in terms of the numerical history. But the reason why 60 is a really good base to have as a system is that it makes things really divisible. So actually, 60 has a lot of factors. You can divide it by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, uh, 12, 20, uh, and, and so on. So there's, lot, there's lots of factors of, of 60, which means that you can divide things up really nicely, which means you don't come into errors when you have to represent things like a third, whereas in our in our... Um, base 10 system, a third is 0.3333333 and so on. You have to keep going and going. Whereas in, in the Sumerian system, you can represent that really nicely um, uh, in terms of their numeral system. So uh, it, it, makes, it means that we don't ever encounter, encounter errors. And there are a lot of people who are advocating moving to a base 12 system. Again, 12 isn't quite as divisible as 60, but actually it has lots of factors. So one, two, three, four, and six, and 12, obviously. So, so it's, a nice, it's a nice system to work with. So lots, lots of people are advocating that. So I look at where base 12 comes up, that it used to come up in the imperial system. Uh, and I talk about how the imperial system was good for making people learn obsolete times tables, but not so good in terms of uh, actually working in science. So people in science use the metric system. Uh, and actually, I talk a lot about uh, the problems you encounter when people convert from metric to imperial. So there's a nice story about um, a, a captain of a plane when uh, Canada were moving from imperial to metric and um, he needs to refuel, but his fuel gauge is broken. So he gets his engineers to do a quick calculation and they refuel the plane and then he's flying through the air and all of a sudden his right engine cuts out and he thinks, oh, this isn't, this isn't great news, but I've got, still got the left engine, so that's no problem. And then the left engine cuts out and he thinks, oh, this is, this is strange because the fuel should still be drawn in by gravity. And what's happened is that he's actually run out of fuel because he did the calculations wrong using imperial instead of metric. And actually, the, the story ends quite happily. In the end, uh, they, they find an airfield nearby and they do, a, they do a, a, an engineless landing, a rudderless landing called a dead stick landing. Uh, and they, they crash land on this runway and, um, and everyone survives. It's a really amazing story, but it hints at the catastrophes that you can have when you get mixed up between your different types of number systems. So that's what that, that chapter is all about. Wow, that's so incredible and scary at the same time. It makes me um, make sure that I, I want to get on and look at the bios of every engineer of every um, exactly. <laughs> plane. But, um, okay, let's talk about relentless optimization. Yeah, so, so this chapter is all about the, the, the places where algorithms can play a role in our everyday lives. And I think um, one of the, the, the main things that comes out of that, that chapter is about about bias. So I think people think that divesting everything to an algorithm can remove bias. So there's there's a lot of um, there was a lot of um, hoo ha about Facebook's trending system. So there was allegations that um, 
naturally organically trending right-wing stories in America were being suppressed by the moderators and that actually left-wing stories were being injected into uh, Facebook trending. So what Facebook did is they basically fired their trending team and set up an algorithm which automatically um, showed what stories were trending and what wasn't. And actually immediately what happened was uh, all sorts of fake news started to be to be trending on these algorithms. So just because you divest power uh, to an algorithm, it doesn't necessarily mean that that algorithm is going to be unbiased. I think people think that maths and and uh, computer algorithms are, are, are unbiased ways of of going about your life, but actually. Um, algorithms are coded by humans and to some extent if they want to those humans can leave imprints of their own bias in the algorithm and those can appear in the results of those algorithms so I think it's uh, it's all about the chapter is all about trying to understand what algorithms are how they work where they work in our society and the things that can go wrong when you divest too much trust into those algorithms. Can we see that right now with the pandemic I mean what are we meant to rely on? Are there algorithms now with the CDC or with other different measurements that are trying to help us? Because, I mean, look, as a, you know, when we're not looking from through your lens, but looking from just the lens of everyday workers who are like, you know what, I just want to get back to work. I've got a family to feed. I've lost my job. I've lost everything. And they're relying on good, you know, good people to tell us the truth. Now, how would it, how does it affect you through your lens when you hear that right now in, in New York, there's 330 million, only 3 million have been tested, but yet the, the president is advocating for a May 15th reopening. Um, what does that scream in your, in your mind? Yeah, I think it's really, um, I think it's potentially quite alarming. I think uh, like in the UK, as in many places in the US, we're over the peak, right? And uh, and this sounds like really positive news, but actually this peak is entirely artificial and it's been induced by the lockdown measures that we have put in place. It's not the same peak that people were talking about early on in the pandemic when we were talking about flattening the curve and letting disease spread slowly through the population so that everyone or a large proportion of people would get infected and then we would end up um, not having herd immunity effectively and then the disease would be denied the space to pass this is an artificial peak if we reduce if we increase uh, or if we reduce lockdown restrictions then what we're going to find is that the vast majority of people who haven't been infected are still a tinderbox basically that a single spark is going to set it off and, and cause cases to rise again and we'll have a second wave and a third wave now I uh, certainly don't want to say that we have to stay in lockdown forever because I think that's a horrible way. I think there are other ways of, of doing this coming out of lockdown. And of course, what's not being taken account of in many of the mathematical models is the impact on people's lives of, of the lockdown and also the impact on the economy. Clearly, economies right across the world are absolutely tanking and that will lead to um, all sorts of unforeseen consequences. So uh, it's a really, really difficult decision. I wouldn't like to be the person making the decision, but uh, we, do, we do need to uh, think really hard about what the mathematical models are telling us and, and how we introduce this lock, uh, or reduce this lockdown in a way that isn't going to cause a second spike in the, in the epidemic across all the different countries. Yeah, no, that um, that makes a lot of sense. It's quite scary. Um, the last point is the the very last principle you speak about is susceptible, infective, removed. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so this <laughs> chapter is all about um, the, the, the sub the subtitle of the chapter is how to stop an epidemic. Uh, so wow. In, I wanted to tell you a little bit maybe about the mathematical models we use to represent epidemics, and then we can talk about the implications of them. Let's so. 
So the most basic model that we use is called a susceptible infected uh, removed model. Uh, so we break down the population into three different compartments, S, I and R for susceptible infected and removed. We assume that people are susceptible, so people who don't have the disease, or they're infected and infectious, so they can pass the disease on to susceptible people if they meet them, or they are removed. And or uh, the removed is sort of a, a, a euphemistic term for recovered from the disease or unfortunately people who've died, but either way, these people are not passing the disease on to the rest of the population. And so what can happen in these models is people can go to work and they can bump into each other, breathe on each other, what have you. Uh, infectious people, when they, they meet with susceptible people, can infect them. Those susceptible people then become infected and can infect more people. And eventually infected people will move into the removed category, either through recovering, which is what we hope, or unfortunately through, through dying. So this, this is the sort of model that we have. And the most important model that comes out of, or sorry, the most important number that comes out of these models is something called the reproduction number. So at the start of an, Yeah, exactly. So at the start of uh, an epidemic, it's called R0, the basic reproduction number. And it tells you for a single infected individual and in, in an entirely susceptible population, so someone who's just got off the, off the plane, who's infected with the disease in a country which is completely susceptible, it tells you how many people that they will infect during the course of their infectious period on average so if that number is bigger than one it means that they will infect at least one other person who will then go on to infect at least one other person and so on and you'll have this unbroken chain of transmission and the disease will take off and spread exponentially if it's less than one then that means that each person will infect on average fewer than one other individual and that means that the disease will eventually die out so this this parameter this reproduction number which is called the basic reproduction number at the start of the disease or later on we call it the effective reproduction number this is crucial in telling us how to control the disease it suggests all sorts of intervention strategies um, to try and bring the disease under control so yeah. the, the reproduction number is, is made up of three different parts so there's the transmissibility of the disease so the more transmissible it is the easier it is to spread between people there's the number of susceptible people in the population. So again, the larger the population is, the more chance you are of, you have of bumping into someone else and therefore uh, passing the disease onto them. And then there's also the recovery rate. So the faster people recover, the less likely they are to pass the disease on to other people. Can I ask them. a question? Can I interject just so we can really understand what you're saying? Because right now, um, is the R naught of COVID-19, it, was it three? I think I looked at it last. Was it three? Right. So, yeah, it, it, it depends on the, the important thing to remember about the, the reproduction numbers. It depends on the society within which it's transmitting. It's, wow. it's going to be different in each country. There are some some aspects of it, like the transmissibility and the recovery time will be relatively constant. But things like the population city, which is like cities like New York and London have had such bad breaks because the density is really high. But, yeah, estimates vary between, um, well, in, in with, with large uncertainty, perhaps between uh, two and four so somewhere in, with, with a value of three would be a representative value yeah and then as new measures come into place with lockdown laws and um with more people recovering does that lessen the r naught exactly yeah so then it becomes the what we call the effective reproduction and we just call it r then and yeah so if we um can do things to reduce these three factors that go into the reproduction number then we can slow it down so 
for example, if we can quarantine people who are sick, then that takes them effectively from the infected category straight into the recovered category. It reduces the effective time for which they can spread the disease. So that reduces the reproduction number. If we can stop people going within two meters of each other, that reduces the transmissibility of the disease. Then that effectively reduces the number of susceptible people in out there who are, who are mixing with each other and that again reduces the reproduction number so all these methods are what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions so not vaccines and not antivirals ways of reducing uh, the reproduction number but of course if we could come up with a vaccine or good antivirals then we could also reduce the reproduction number through those pharmaceutical methods as well that is unbelievable. I would love to just, you know, um, take a walk through your lens and see how you see the world, especially during a pandemic. I mean, you just wrote a book, you know, about the epidemiology of, you know, with math and, and of a pandemic and then it actually happens. So it's like you're actually putting into play everything that you've learned and studied throughout your life or the, you know, hypothesis that you've gone through and you can actually put it into real life. It must be absolutely fascinating. Um, now, I know that, you know, we can put a disclaimer out with the next question because I know this is just your opinion and it's not coming from, you know, anywhere else. But I would love to know what your thoughts are moving forward with the pandemic and um, and how you see it playing out for, you know, May, June, July onwards. Yeah, I think unfortunately we're in this for the long haul. Um, and there's potential to develop a vaccine and that will take a while. It'll take maybe between 12 and 18 months. If you can vaccinate a high enough proportion of the population, then you can get what's called herd immunity, which is uh, where you effectively take enough of the susceptible people out of the population that you reduce the reproduction number to below one. And that means that the disease is denied the susceptible infected contacts it needs to spread through the population. So that's the, the ultimate goal. But until we develop that, we either have to try to completely eradicate the spread and then make sure that any new cases are rigorously tested and taken out of out of circulation um, or we have to um, deal with the fact that there are going to be multiple waves of this epidemic and potentially uh, we have to keep the cases low enough that we don't overwhelm hospitals but at the same time we need to let the disease move through the population that's this herd immunity strategy now i don't think that um that either of those are, are particularly um, likely to work 100%. And I actually think the herd immunity strategy risks a large number of people dying from this disease. So it'd be preferable if we can keep numbers incredibly low. Um, but that's going to be difficult to do if we want to return to any sort of semblance of normality. I think we're going to have to accept the fact that things are not going to go back to normal uh, quickly, perhaps not ever. I don't know if, if things are ever going to return to um, the, the way that they were before this pandemic, but certainly for the next 18 months or so until a, va a vaccination is developed, we're going to have to accept that there are going to be significant changes to our lifestyles. Wow. You know what? This has been such an amazing and insightful episode. Where can, um, where can we buy your book and find out more about you? So the book's available, uh, hopefully at all good retailers. Uh, of course, you can get it on Amazon, but also it's important to say that independent bookstores are really struggling at the moment with, with the lockdown. So if you can buy it from a, a local independent bookshop, shop, which, which you can do, uh, then please do uh, go and, and patronise those, those places as well. Do you ship to Australia? Yeah, it's out in Australia. It's out in, uh, it's out in the US. It's out in the UK and various other countries around. There's going to be 
25 or 26 countries eventually and they're all just coming online at the moment so um yeah please please go out and you can get it in your language kit i'm excited to follow your career and see everything um that you're going to be putting out there on social related to um, mathematics and of course COVID-19. Thank you so much for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast.